Good morning. Welcome to Gateway's 9 o'clock service. Thank you for those of you who are braving the early morning. Some of you are thinking this is not early at all. Others of you are sleepy. This is us. And we are a bunch of people who are trying our best, usually, and sometimes getting it right, sometimes not. So this morning, we're going to extend this series of conversations, and today we're going to be talking about parenting. Now, don't dial out. Uh, Some of you are not parents, you're thinking to yourself. I want to suggest to you that's not necessarily true. Part of what we're going to talk about today is spiritual parenting. You are spiritually parenting other people. Some of you, your children are grown and out of the house, and you know as well as Yes, amen. There were applause at that. You know as well as I do, your job is not yet done, and there are still some of these themes hanging around. Others of you are actively parenting children at home, and honestly, I will especially want you to dial in. At the very end of what we're going to say today, I'm going to make a kind of summary comment that will really apply to all of us. Ray Romano, the actor and comedian, once said, everyone should have kids. They are the greatest joy in the world, but they are also terrorists. You realize this as soon as they are born, and they start using sleep deprivation to break you. Many of you may have had this experience, but having children changed my life much more than even getting married. It was a dramatic, life-altering, and wonderfully so, life-altering event for me. We have three sons, and our two oldest sons, when they were little, they were terrific. They were pretty easy, and they were great sleepers. They were awesome. They were almost perfect. Those of you who know my children, you know, as they grew into adulthood, that perfection disappeared dramatically. But um, our youngest was born with, you know, he had croup, and he had some other little complications. He was just a little bit feisty, and he just would not sleep. And I was sleep-deprived for months, Diane more so. One night in particular, this still lives in folklore with Diane and I, Graham was crying, and it was one of those nights, some of you who are parents recognize these nights, I go in, my youngest son's name is Graham, I go in and I pick Graham up and I walk him around for a while and he gets settled, and we did this dance for over an hour, it might have been hours, he's asleep, and I begin to lay him down, as soon as his head, so I pick him up again, this just goes on and on. And I am so exhausted. And finally, I just brought him into our bedroom, dropped him on the floor at the foot of our bed, and got back in bed. And after a while, Diane hears something crying. She wakes up. She says, where's Graham? Where is Graham? And I said, he's on the floor at the foot of the bed. She said, what are you talking about? I said, he's lucky I didn't throw him out the window. (laughs) And I realized the next morning when I looked at myself in the mirror, it's crazy that they, that they let people like me raise children. <laughs> Parenting is an adventure, and it is extraordinary work. It's extraordinarily challenging, it's extraordinarily life-altering, and it is extraordinarily important at every phase of it. In fact, there's a verse of Scripture in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 7, 14, where the Apostle Paul, he says this by implication, he's talking about marriage, But he says as an aside, children of believing parents are holy to the Lord. And that word holy is his most 
That's his most special spiritual word. That means set apart for God's unique and special purposes. Children of believing parents are holy to the Lord. This morning, I want to look at four surprising observations and a conclusion based on each one about parenting. Now, since we are suburban Americans, I'd love to talk about how we have taken too much risk out of our kids' lives. We've taken too much difficulty out of our kids' lives. We've taken too much challenge out of our kids' lives. This is what suburban American parenting is about these days. And we live in the capital of suburban America. But we're not going to talk about that. I'm instead going to talk about four surprising observations about parenting and then four conclusions that fall out of each of these observations. If we were doing a week-long seminar on parenting, I might spend a, a session on each one of these. But the first surprising observation that I want to list for us this morning is the Bible doesn't say as much about parenting as we might expect. Now, this is an argument from silence, so we should be careful with it. And, of course, the Bible says things about parenting, but as suburban Americans, we might expect the Bible to say much more than it does about parenting. I used to pastor in the inner city. Before Diane and I moved to northern Virginia, we spent nearly 15 years in Boston in a very poor neighborhood. In our neighborhood in Boston, I mean, I don't know what it is today, but back at this point in U.S. history, this is the 1840s, the average age in America was a little over 33. The average age in our neighborhood was 16 and a half. So there were children, of course, having children. We talked a lot about parenting in our context and some of the how to do it. And there was a lot of encouragement about just loving your kids and investing in your kids. Go visit the school where your kids get to know their teacher. Hey, when they have a sporting event, go to their sporting event. Get involved in your kids' lives. Know what your kids are doing. There was lots of talk about that. And, of course, the Bible allows you to talk about that. The Bible talks quite a great deal about loving one another, of course, and it, it even says specifically to love your children in Titus 2, 14. But this is not the problem that we have in suburban northern Virginia. When we moved here, I realized almost instantly, as soon as our kids went to school, this is a very, very different parenting environment than the parenting environment that we had come from. In fact, it may be that we have the opposite problem. We overlove our children. It may be that we have made idols out of our children. We know that because of how disappointed we get when our children don't meet the standards that we've set for them in our hearts and minds academically or athletically. So here is the quick conclusion that falls out of this surprising observation about parenting. Do not make an idol out of your children. It's not good for you spiritually, and it's not good for them. It puts an expectation on your children that they're not yet built to bear. Do not make an idol out of your children. Check the level of disappointment that you feel when things don't go rightly for them. And please understand, let's go back to that opening theme that I wasn't going to talk about. When things begin to go really badly in your children's lives, you don't need to clean that up. That may be the time when the greatest lessons are available to them. This is the time for you to dial in, certainly, but in a very different way. 
not cleaning everything up and making it easy for them. Second surprising observation about parenting. Spiritual education is the primary job of parents. Spiritual education is the primary job of parents. This is surprising because many of us think of the church as the place where spiritual education happens. It's worth noting that along with the fact that the Bible doesn't say as much about parenting as we might expect, much of what it does say addresses the spiritual education of our children. Spiritual education of children happens primarily in the home, for good or not for good. That's where it happens. You are training your children spiritually, whether you're doing it well and intentionally, or whether you're doing it poorly and unintentionally. Now, I'm glad you bring your children to church to further their spiritual education. I've had two young families tell me in the last two weeks that they're fairly new to Gateway, and that's part of the reason they're coming. They want something for their kids, and that's awesome. The spiritual education of children is also the church's responsibility. I want to look at a passage of Scripture real quickly. At the end of the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 31, Moses says this, and Moses commanded them at the end of every seven years in the year for canceling decks during the festival of tabernacles when all Israel comes together, appear before the Lord your God. So everybody's together. It's a, a religious holiday for them the place he will choose. You shall read this law before them in their hearing. So I want you to notice that this is a corporate context, and he's saying in the midst of this holiday celebration, I want you to read the law to, to everyone. Assemble the people, men, women, and children, and the foreigners residing in your town so they can listen and learn to fear the Lord your God and follow carefully all the words of this law. Their children who do not know this law must hear it and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land you are crossing the Jordan to possess. It's certainly the corporate responsibility of the church, all of us together, to educate our children spiritually. Also, in all that the New Testament teaches about how we're supposed to comport ourselves with one another, how we're supposed to act, we're supposed to teach one another and train one another and exhort one another. And children are, of course, included in the one anothering. That's why we give ourselves lots of opportunity to volunteer in our kids' program in the back because we are to educate our children here as a church. But the primary job of spiritual education belongs to parents. And this is the primary job that we do as parents. I'm going to say that again because this is the, if you miss everything else, don't miss this point. The primary job of spiritual education belongs to parents. Some of you know this well, and you've tried to do this, and I commend you. And this is the primary job that we as parents do. One more passage, Deuteronomy chapter 6, 4 through 7. Let me say a little word about this passage. If you've, if you've heard this passage before, this is one of the most important passages in the practice of Jewish faith, both before Jesus and since. The word here in Hebrew is Shema, and this is called the Shema. And they read this regularly at temple and at synagogue. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road. And when you lie down and when you get up, tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. 
Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. As you're doing life, impress these truths on your children, that God is one and you are to love him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and this is what it looks like to love him. The primary job of spiritual education belongs to parents, and this is the primary job that we do as parents. Again, if we were to do a week-long seminar on parenting, we might spend a day on this. Now, the church has to assist in this job by training parents so that they can train their children, but the primary job of spiritual education is the job of parents. And that's still true for those of us who have adult children. We are still in the business of speaking into their lives. So, here's the conclusion. should be obvious. Parents, train your children spiritually. This is your primary job. Talk about Sunday morning with them. On the way home, hey, today's a great one. Here's what we talked about today. Today we talked about parenting. I learned how difficult you are and why you don't go to sleep at times. Talk about what we discuss. Talk about what you are learning through your own spiritual devotion life. Just talk about it casually. Talk about it when you're driving them to baseball practice. And if you don't have a devotional life, start one so you can talk to your kids about it and also so you can get to know God. Entertain their God questions. Answer as best you can. Look up stuff with them. I don't know. Let's look it up. Google is your best friend. Tell them to ask Miss Aaron or, or Moses. Tell them to come ask me. I have to tell the story. Years ago, uh, there's a young woman. You're not supposed to have favorites, but she's one of my favorites. Came through Gateway, and she was an extremely, extremely bright young woman. We all think our kids are bright. This young girl was bright. She was always reading about things that were beyond me, but certainly beyond her, and sometimes beyond her capacity to take it all in. So I remember one time she had a serious question about an issue that she was struggling with, an article that she had read or a book she'd read or something that she had seen on television. And so her parents encouraged her to say something to Pastor Ed about it. So they told me the next Sunday, you know, I think she has a question for you. Why don't you just sit down and field this one? So she's sitting down in a chair after church one Sunday, and I go sit down beside her, and I say, hey, how you doing? She said, I'm doing okay. And I said, well, you look a little bothered. Tell me what's going on. Your mom and dad said I should say something to you. And she said, Pastor Ed, do you know what biodiversity is? <laughs> Well, fortunately, within the last two weeks, I had actually read an article about biodiversity for some weird reason. Later, I told Diane about this, and she said, Lord, I'm glad she didn't ask me. I said, well, I mean, I know a little bit about biodiversity, and she had been worrying that we were not taking care of the world the way that we should, and biodiversity was decreasing listened, we talked for a little while, and it gave me an opportunity to say, you know what, that's a great thing for us to be concerned about, but you and I don't need to worry because God is sovereign. It ended up being a really sweet moment for this child and I. Spiritual education is the primary job of parents, and if you say to your kid one day that your kid, uh, I had a, a parent email me about three weeks ago and tell me that their child had asked, where was God before the world was created? And then followed that up with, how in the world do I answer this, Pastor Ed? 
entertain those questions. Take them somewhere. Look them up. Try to look them up with your child. You tell your child to ask Miss Aaron or to ask me. We don't know, by the way. But all of that happens within the context of your parenting. You be in charge of it. It's the primary job of parents to spiritually train their children. By the way, the same thing applies to your life as a spiritual father or mother. As a spiritual father or mother. Your primary job is not to, listen, your primary job is not to hold hands or to encourage or to bring meals. And if you're very involved in Gateway, I want you to listen, small group leader. I want you to listen, Gateway caregiver. Listen, those of you who are engaging, and some of you are, in profoundly cool spiritual conversations with people who are just beginning to engage spiritually. Your primary job is spiritual training. Your primary job is not building warm connection. We talk a lot about connection at Gateway, but that's not your primary job. You are to tell others all that you know about God and his love for us. We are to train one another, not just have warm conversations with one another. Parents, train your children spiritually. This is your job. Okay, third surprising observation. The Bible is not very interested in self-esteem, good citizenship, success, or appropriate social behavior. Let's pause over that one for dramatic effect. The Bible is not very interested in self-esteem, good citizenship, success, or appropriate social behavior. This is surprising because this is where we spend most of our parental energy. I'm not saying these things shouldn't be of interest to us. Of course they should, but these things come, if they come at all, as byproducts of the more essential things. So what are the more essential things for us as parents? What are we to train our children in? And this is the critically important question for us, isn't it? So let's look first at Psalm 145, verses 3 through 7, and I want you to hear two profound training themes that come out of this passage that are repeated throughout the Bible. Psalm 145, verses 3 through 7. Great is the Lord, we sang that this morning, and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. We just can't get it. One generation commends your works to another. They tell of your mighty acts. They speak of your glorious splendor, of your majesty, and I will meditate on your wonderful works. They tell of the power of your awesome works, and I will proclaim your great deeds. They celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. Two profound themes leap out of this to us. One, we are to train our children to know God's works. Every time your kid runs into a scrape, especially when your children run into a scrape with another human being, another child, this is our opportunity to say, hey, this is how God works, and this is how God wants us to operate in this kind of situation. We train our children to know God's works, to know how he does things, and to know what it is he does in various circumstances. And the Bible gives us a large library of how God operates in various kinds of situations. Secondly, we are to train our children to worship God joyfully. We are not pointing our kids toward good behavior. We are to train our children to worship joyfully. And when we do that, good behavior is a natural byproduct. Let's look at one more passage. Again, 
the Shema. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 7, three profound training themes here. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 7, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Three profound themes here. We are to train our children in God's expectations and commands. We are to train them in what God says. We are to tell them and show them how the people who love God live. Secondly, the end result. Two things. The end result toward which this point should be, one, that they will hold God in deep reverence. This passage says, fear the Lord. And secondly, that they are all in that their lives are sold out to God, that they love him with heart, mind, soul, and strength. So I want to get very real and graphic about what this means. We are training people. Parents, don't miss this. If you are a literal parent especially, don't miss this. We are training people who will love God so much that they will one day abandon us for the cause of Christ. This is a quote from Elizabeth Elliot. She wrote a book called Shadow of the Almighty, and it's a book about her first husband, Jim Elliot. She and her husband, Jim Elliot, went to do ministry among a tribe of people in the Amazon region of Ecuador many years ago, and at first contact with these uh, natives, Jim Elliot lost his life. He was 23 years old. She quotes from her husband, Jim Elliot, from his journals and from letter exchange between Jim and his parents. This is what Elizabeth Elliot said. At age 22, Jim Elliot had a promising ministry in front of him in the United States. He probably could have been a very successful pastor or evangelist or professor. His parents were not very excited about his call to go to the Chiquas in South America. They wrote and told him so. And he answered them like this. I do not wonder that you were saddened at the word of my going to South America. This is nothing else than what the Lord Jesus warned us when he told his disciples that they must become so infatuated with the kingdom and following him that all other allegiances must become as though they were not. And he never excluded the family tie. In fact, those loves that we regard as closest, he told us must become as hate in comparison with our desire to uphold his cause. Grieve not, then, if your sons seem to desert you, but rejoice, rather, seeing the will of God done gladly. Remember how the psalmist described children? He said that they were as an inheritance from the Lord and that every man should be happy who had his quiver full of them. And what is a quiver full of but arrows? And what are arrows for but to shoot? So with strong arms of prayer... Draw the bowstring back and let the arrows fly, all of them, straight at the enemy's hosts. Give of thy sons to bear the message glorious. Give of thy wealth to speed them on their way. Pour out thy soul for them in prayer victorious. And all thou spendest, Jesus will repay. We're training children like that. We're not training our children to enable them to purchase picket fencedom. We're training them to advance God's kingdom with heart, mind, and soul. Parents, here's the surprising conclusion based on this surprising observation. 
Focus your attention on the greatness of God, on his works and his ways. Learn about him and get to know him. This will enable you to train your kids in this path. Focus your attention on the greatness of God. And what you set your attention on will spill out of your lives and your children will be trained. This will enable you to train your children in what is essential. Okay, final surprising observation. Obedience and love are complementary terms. This is surprising because some of us tend to think of obedience as an Old Testament idea. The God of the Old Testament we think is mean and requires obedience. The God of the New Testament is nice and loving and he requires us to love. But there's no difference between the God of the Old and the God of the New Testament. I'm going to read out of the Bible for a second here and I want you to hear Jesus' words. In John 14, 23 and 24, Jesus said, If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. Just notice in Jesus' mind and heart the interplay between love and obedience. And then Jesus' best friend John got this. In 2 John 1.6, John says, And this is love, colon, he describes it, that we walk in obedience to his commands. And then it twists back on itself. As you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. Love and obedience are complementary terms. This is why we teach our children to obey. Not because we don't want to be embarrassed in the grocery store. Not even because we want our children to be good citizens and successful. We teach our children to obey because love and obedience are complementary terms and we want our children to be loving. Ephesians 6.1 and Colossians 3.20, Paul tells children they must obey their parents. And of course, it's implied in that, that parents must teach their children to obey. Obedience is critical. I want to illustrate why. I read an article by a pastor and author, John Piper, this week, talking about this very issue. Why obedience is required, the title of the article. And he gave this graphic illustration. And he does look at the opening of this illustration. He's not trying to make a point about, he's, he's not even really entertaining the point about police violence, and, and sometimes that goes badly. And some of you live on the wrong side of that exchange. So don't hear him defending police here and police action. But he's offering an illustration of something that's profound and graphic for us. So listen. Last week I saw two things that prompted this article. One was the killing of 13-year-old Andy Lopez in Santa Rosa, California, by police who thought he was about to shoot them with an assault rifle. It was a toy gun. What made this relevant was that the police said they told the boy two times to drop the gun. Instead, he turned it on them, and they fired. I do not know the details of that situation, or if Andy even heard the commands. So I can't say for sure that he was insubordinate. He may very well not have been. So my point here is not about young Lopez himself. It's about the what if. It got me thinking. What if he'd heard the police? and simply defied what they said. If that is true, it cost him his life. Such would be the price of disobeying proper authority. I witnessed such a scenario in the making on a plane last week, and it made me think of the first instance. I watched a mother preparing her son to be shot. 
I was sitting behind her and her son, who may have been seven years old. He was playing on his digital tablet. The flight attendant announced that all electric devices should be turned off for takeoff. He didn't turn his off. The mother didn't require it. As the flight attendant walked by, she said he needed to turn it off and kept moving. He didn't do it. The mother didn't require it. One last time, the flight attendant stood over them and said that the boy would need to give the device to his mother. He turned it off. When the flight attendant took her seat, the boy took his device back from his mother and kept it on the whole time during takeoff. The mother did nothing. I thought to myself, she is training him to be shot by police. Parents, here's the conclusion. We must teach our children to obey. This is not just an old school concept. This is life and death. Here's why. If children learn to obey their parents, stay with this. If children learn to obey their parents, then they can grow up to be the kind of people who will obey themselves. And eventually, if they understand obedience, they can become the kind of people who will obey all legitimate authority, and ultimately, they will become the kind of people who will obey God. And they cannot love God unless they understand obedience. Parents, we must teach our children to obey. Let me make some concluding remarks about this, especially this last one. Concluding remark number one, this is us, and none of us gets to be the people who do it all right. None of us gets to be the people who do not raise sinners. None of us gets to be the people who do not make mistakes with our children. Second observation, for those of you who are parents with young children, I want to say a quick word about this obedience thing that I ended with. Diane and I talked about this several times this week. Diane is my wife, for those of you who do not know us. And I originally, when I was thinking about what we were going to talk about this morning, I had imagined that Diane would be up here with me. I wanted her to talk with me today. She, of course, did not love that idea and uh, had other responsibilities this morning. She's in the back with children. And what I wanted to do was I was going to around similar observations, but I was going to talk about, hey, here's two things that we did really well. And then I was going to make Diane talk about, here's two things that we stunk at. But this is one of the things that we did reasonably well, teaching our children to obey. So I want to say a quick word about that, because we talked about that. What and how did that work? We certainly messed some things up, but this one we did pretty well, especially when our children were little. As they got older, not, I'm being serious, not, not as effective, but, but we did this well when they were little, and I think those are the critical years. So Diane and I have concluded that some of our effectiveness in this was really around two things. One, and some of you know this in your own parenting, uh, if you don't, please listen. One, we were pretty consistent with one another and from situation to situation. So neither of us were wildly volatile, and situation to situation, of course, situations are different, and the children are different, and you treat the children differently, but pretty much they always knew what they were going to get. We were very consistent, and we were consistent with one another. We never contradicted one another in our parenting. We talked about that, communicated regularly. We also talked specifically. This is what I did to Dawson. Oh, okay. 
Wow, buddy, that sounds a little bit rough. Yeah, Dad. Well, you're getting more of it from me, pal. (laughs) Secondly, remember this. Parents of young children, we always, always exercised discipline for two things. There's a lot of stuff you let go, but we always exercised discipline. We disciplined them for two things, direct disobedience and disrespectful attitudes. You don't have to have whiny children. When our children started to whine, my standard line was, hey, buddy, it's just going to get worse for you. And it did. Direct disobedience and disrespectful attitude, we always disciplined. Now, it takes energy to always be mindful of those things. You're out and you're dragging three of them to the oldest one's baseball game and somebody's copping an attitude. That takes a lot of energy to deal with that. That's the last thing you want to deal with. Don't let it go. We always exercise discipline for direct disobedience. I tell you something, you don't do it, you are in big trouble. I tell you something, and you do it, but you've got an attitude. You're in trouble. I believe that this helped our sons develop not only the ability to to obey, but it also developed a measure of emotional health. Our kids have a lot of problems. Some of you know our children. They have lots of problems. But they are not drama queens. They're pretty even about life. They're able to just take most situations and handle them. I'm really proud of that. And some of that was because we always disciplined disrespectful attitudes and direct disobedience. Third concluding observation, when we think about training our children in obedience, it's helped for us to think about how God has dealt with us. I wish we had a long time to talk about this, but I'm going to do this quickly. How does God deal with us as his people? There are really three themes that consistently emerge in God's discipline of his children, and I don't have time to walk through the scriptural evidence of this, but I want you to hear this. This is interesting. There are three big picture themes that emerge as we look at how God deals with us. Number one, consistently, God allows natural consequences to have their effect. So when Esau traded away his birthright, what he got was hot stew and no birthright. And God never readdressed that. When Israel went to war without consulting God, without finding the right battle plan, they lost. God allowed natural consequences to have their effect. He does in our lives, and we need to do the same in our children's. Secondly, consistently, God withheld privileges. Many examples, but let's just give one. When Moses disobeyed, he did not get to go into the promised land And this is the thing toward which his entire life had pointed. God consistently withheld privileges. And thirdly, restoration was always God's point when he was training in obedience. His aim was always to draw his people back to himself. And no matter how far afield they got, return was always possible. God's mercy was always longer and deeper than his anger. And it was his hope and it was his point, and it should be ours as well. 
when we're training our children in obedience. Our goal is never to punish. Our goal is to train. So I was kind of scanning my emotional and relational horizon for an illustration to wrap up with some warm story that would illustrate one or all of these points. There were many illustrations that came to mind, but I thought it's really unfair to my children. They always have to be the brunt of my stories, and even the stories that are going to make me look bad, some of them will look bad by implication. So I decided let's end in a different way. Let's end with the point that we made earlier, and let's acknowledge here at Gateway, we make a really big deal out of connecting. We talk a lot about community, and I want you guys to be drawn in. I want you to connect with one another because that's what God wants for us. I've said repeatedly over the last several months, I'm so glad that so many of you who are newer over the last six or nine months are drawing in and getting connected. Some of you are even serving. Thank you. But I want you to know, when we gather here on Sunday morning, if it's a lot of people, I said this on Easter. There's a lot of people on Easter Sunday morning here. And I said, this is awesome, but this is a crowd. This is not a church. A church is an inner relationship of people connecting with one another. We talk about that a lot here at Gateway. But I want you to know, in Jesus' most special instructions to his followers, right before he ascended into heaven, he's got his followers around him, and the very last thing he said to them, this is sometimes called the Great Commission, because it's Jesus' last words to his followers, and he gives them the giddy-up. Here's what I want you to do, folks. I want you to go out, spread out all over the world, and I want you to Tell other people about me, and I want you to make just really warm connections with one another. That's not what he said. What he said is, I want you to go out all over the world, and I want you to teach them and train them what it means to be a follower of me. And I want you to baptize them and and show them that they're in. And I'm going to be with you as you do that. So our job as parents and our job as spiritual parents It's not to build warm connections with one another. Our job is to train one another to do life in his kingdom. Let me pray. Thank you, Lord. I pray this morning for those that are here who are parents. I pray especially for our parents of young children. Lord, inspire and also be equipping them to do this really mind-blowing and life-altering and future-shaping job. And I pray for us as a community that we would be supporting that job. I also pray for us as a community, Lord, that we would be a place where we're really training one another. We're teaching one another. Help us, Lord, because we can't do it without you. We barely know enough to train. So help us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you guys stand with us? Let's sing this together. Sing over our children.
time is now. offering at the door this morning. So as you're on your way out, please give and uh, you may go in peace.